Blog Talk Radio. Stephen James here, and welcome to the Story Blender, a place where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Our guest today is a renowned novelist and nonfiction writer. He's written more than two dozen novels and novellas. Al Gansky has also directed and regularly teaches at some of the top writers' conferences in the country. I know personally that he's a great encourager of aspiring authors. In fact, this summer is the 10-year anniversary of my first novel, The Pawn, and when I was working on The Pawn, I sent the first 50 pages or so to Alton, and and he gave me some insights and ended up in a three-book deal that got uh, my whole Patrick Bowers series started. So I've known Al for a long time. He's a good friend and a great writer, and I'm glad he's with me today. Alton, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I, I still remember when I was researching my second novel, The Rook, I came out there to San Diego and you gave me a personal tour of the city and I tried to weave as many things as I could in into the book, but the one thing I didn't get in was the lasagna place that we went to. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, <laughs> that's a wonderful they, place and well-known in San Diego. What, what was the name of that? Do you remember that place? Um, I just Olympia. remember... That that was like the size of a brick was the lasagna that they brought you. Yeah, it was a cake style lasagna. Yeah, it was Filippi. There's really several of them, but uh, they ended up being passed on to different uh, family members uh, as, as time went on. But uh, the one we went to, I thought, had the uh, absolute best lasagna pizza ever. Yeah, and, that was uh, fun. Still visit it when, when I go back. Oh, there. when you get back, yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah. And uh, I know over the years, too, we've shared a lot over cups of coffee at writers' conferences. So it's it's fun to be able to kind of sit down and pick your brain on what um, what you see as the secrets to, to stories, to great stories. And I know you teach quite a bit around the country. And uh, so let's let's just start with the idea of story. When you're when you're teaching fiction writing, Al, what? Where do you start? What's the groundwork for you to really get people thinking? Here is what what a novel really either looks like or needs to contain. Well, I think mostly it's going to come down uh, to the the primary characters, really the protagonist. You have to have an interesting premise, of course, but if you don't have a protagonist that people can either root for, or even if they dislike them, there's something about them that you need to root for them because their success maybe helps someone else. But there has to be that kind of connection. And um, when I would teach my students how to pitch their ideas to agents and editors, I'd always teach them to uh, pitch the person. Uh, what, I, what I mean by that is pitch your character, use character names. Don't say my protagonist does this. Because I want you to meet my protagonist, uh, J.T. Stanton, and you know a line of description and then go on and then, it helps us connect with somebody. Uh, there's a reason we wear name tags when we go to conferences and the like. We're people-oriented. And it's the same thing with a story. If you can get somebody to believe that the protagonist and the other characters are real, even though they know they're not, you can get them to believe for a short period of time that they are real, then uh, you'll have a satisfied reader. Now, I've talked to other people about pitches, and I would never claim that I know a lot about pitches, and it's just not my specialty, but... That really rings true for me. I think the generic pitch where someone says uh, something like, well, what if a bomb expert had to defuse a bomb in his own house or something like that, whatever. Right. And it seems it's just, so okay, so what, right? But, you know, your approach is more personal. It's like, you know, Sebastian uh, is a bomb expert and has to defuse a bomb before it before it kills his wife or something like that, where it really becomes all about people instead of just events. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, There has to be a, uh, certainly an implied loss, but sometimes it's even just stated. So, for example, if our, our bomb expert here discovers a bomb in his house and his family can't leave, so say he's got two kids or he's got a, uh, I don't know, a crippled child or something like that, and he and only he can save the day, and there's reasons why he might not be able to do it, then we have suspense. Mm. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, taught that um, if you, you're you making a movie and uh, the audience watches a restaurant blow up, that's not suspense. That's action, that's disaster, but it's not suspense. 
if the audience sees somebody plant a bomb under a table in a restaurant and then two people were interested in sit at that table and they start a conversation, that's suspense. Because we know something bad can happen and we're wondering how in the world are they going to survive. So now you have characters you care about, but now then you have something that is pressing them to to action uh, in which their lives and maybe the lives of others uh, might be at stake. And um, I think that might be one of the reasons why multiple point of views have become so popular these days in suspense novels, because to pull that off, you really need to allow the uh, readers or maybe the, the audience, if it were a film or screenplay, to see um, danger that the protagonist or the other characters aren't aware of. And then as the bomb ticks down, they don't even know that it's there. But, but to pull that off, you need to have you know, two, two different point-of-view sections, maybe. Well, I think you're exactly right. For, for high-end suspense and thrillers, uh, that, that third person uh, where the narrator is telling the story, not, we're not going directly through the eyes of the characters in the first person, um, multi-point of view gives you more latitude, gives you some elbow room to do that. So you can be in your protagonist's head at, in one scene and then later in another chapter, another scene, you might have the person planting the bomb. So now the reader knows and the reader wants to tell the protagonist, but of course the reader can't tell the protagonist what's going on. They can only watch. But since they become uh, a helpless victor, uh, a witness, uh, uh, somebody standing by, who uh, can't do anything about the action that's going to take place, so they have to root for the protagonist. So I think you're absolutely right. Third person, especially for thrillers, is really the way to go. Yeah, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is just my inclination that when, okay, so we had novels first, and then film came on the scene, and film at first kind of mirrored novels, but as film grew in it, into its own art form, they began to to do that, to use multiple point of views, um, even uh, through the eyes of a character um, as it developed. And then now I think that writing is starting to mirror um, film a little bit in the way that we use those principles of multiple point of views, like different perspectives, like a director would um, when when we write. So it, it seems like to me that the pendulum has swung a little bit, whereas film used to emulate fiction. Now it seems like fiction is emulating film. Yeah, I think so. And one of the reasons that's working so well is the film has made such inroads into society. I, mean, I was just at a movie yesterday. Um, and we get used to storytelling in that form. So when it comes to us in a book that way, which is often called cinematic style, hmm. uh, many of the novels I've written have been written in cinematic style. And basically that means the chapters are a little shorter, like scenes in a movie. Um, and we can move wherever we want. We have a, an a nearly omnipotent or omniscient narrator. Um, you don't want a completely omniscient narrator, but nonetheless, you want somebody who can tell you what's going on. Uh, and we've become used to seeing through the eye of the camera. We read that way now as though we're the camera and seeing all of those things. And so yeah. we're used to seeing action that way. So it, it has, the, the, the tail is wagging the dog now. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I like that. It's uh, c- cinematic storytelling. And I feel like, you know, so much of our culture is visual these days, whether it's YouTube or, you know, binge-watching on Amazon or Netflix or Hulu, whatever it is. Um, so much of our lives seem to revolve around that. And I heard a study that um, last year 40% of adults, um, literate adults in the U.S., didn't even read a single book, and another 20% only read one book in the entire year. So you had 60% of literate adults in America reading one or no books in a given year. It's just, that's terrifying to me as a writer writer of novels. (laughs) This does make you wonder if it was your book they were reading. Yeah, wait a minute. Yeah, it's probably. (laughs) I hope I'm not the reason for, for people not reading the books, but... But I um, just hope that the book that's being read is, is yours. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that, absolutely. That's true. Yeah. I saw the same study, and it is uh, it's disheartening. A lot of it has to do with the way we receive information now. We're so internet-based, so computer-based, so movie-based, television. Yeah. I mean, we can watch stuff on our phones now um, that it 
easier to do that than it is to find a quiet place, sit down, and project ourselves into uh, the pages of a book. And, uh, you know, one wonders about how much longer. I'm sure books will always be around, but the percentage of people turning to books to read uh, is probably diminishing. Uh, and uh, that's why you have a few exceptional writers who are still doing quite well, uh, but uh, a lot of uh, writing is going by the wayside now. It's, it's all changing. Yeah, and more and more books are being published, and fewer and fewer people are, are picking them up to read them. Um, you know, through self-publishing and other means, we have thousands and thousands of books coming out every month. And um, and and so it becomes this struggle to get known, to get noticed for, for so many authors. Now, I know, have you done some hybrid publishing, Al, where you've done some work with traditional publishers and also some independent publishing projects? I have. Um, what I started with is, um, and I'm, just in case some of our listeners, uh, these are a couple of terms they may not know. I'm just going to explain them. But I think most people do know. Books go out of print. Uh, and, you know, so as an author, you know, the, 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 it's usually just abbreviated OP or OOP, out of print. Uh, and uh, what that means is that the publisher has no obligation to print any more of these. They'll sell what they have in warehouse if they still have warehouses. Um, or it just, it just goes by the wayside. Well, when rights revert back uh, to me, then what I do is I go over the book again and I republish it. You know, and I'm not selling tens of thousands of copies, but I'm just keeping the work alive. Yeah. And the idea is, you know, if they read a, a book of mine that's traditionally published, they go look for other stuff, but these are still available to them. Sure. And that's, uh, that's mostly what it is. And then I did a, a couple of uh, nonfiction books uh, that I just self-published because the length was such that a, a traditional publisher wouldn't uh, wouldn't touch it. So it's not that I have a problem with traditional publishing. It's just that they have some limitations. And sure. We'll probably talk about the Harbinger series I was part of. And we initially started off self-publishing, but that was just because of the nature of traditional publishing. There was just no way they were going to touch that. Well, then traditional publisher came along and uh, bought the first half of the series. Oh, excellent. Uh, and yeah. Is, yeah, is now publishing them. Um, you know, but that wouldn't have happened unless we had self-published it. So, yeah. Now, the Harbinger—that's uh, a series that you worked collaboratively with other authors on. You can go ahead and tell us a little bit about that process. How did that work, or what challenges did you face pulling that together to write a series? How many was it? Three or four other authors? Uh, There's four authors at a time. It's been total in now five. I'll explain okay. that in a second yeah. here. Um, but it was an experiment, and uh, you know, we're talking about how society's changing. Well, Bill Myers. Uh, conceived of this idea. Bill Myers has written 125 books and a couple of dozen uh, screenplays. So he does movies, he does prints work, um, lots of novels uh, and the like. But he became aware that the attention span, uh, especially in the United States, was becoming shorter and shorter. And uh, time was coming at a premium for uh, many people. And so he brought in his uh, television work, his thinking, and he contacted uh, me as well as a few others, and he said, here's what I want to do. Um, I want to pull together a writing team like what you have in a television series. There's oh, never yeah. just one writer for a television series. It's a team. It's a room, a little boiler room, and they get different assignments, and they have to work together to keep uh, the – sometimes it's just called the story Bible, you know, not like the Holy Bible, but a, you know, a collection of the facts that go on. You know, Star Trek has a whole huge set of things that are – supposed to be the facts of the story that you have to uh, stay in touch sure. with. So he became the showrunner, as they call it. And uh, he asked me if I'd participate, uh, Angie Hunt and Frank Peretti. Uh, and we became the first four. And then when Frank Peretti had to go off and do some uh, longer books, all of ours are novellas. Novella is uh, from the Italian. It's the uh, feminine of a novello, and it just means new, but it's a small novel. So about 20,000 words a piece. So I'm the long-winded one, and mine usually run about 100 pages. Um, so he wanted to do that, and the idea was to produce an episodic story that had sub-stories in it. And by that, I mean every six to eight weeks, we would release a new novella. Oh, wow. And we would just alternate. We had a team of uh, five, four adults, one child. Each had... Um, a supernatural uh, gift of some sort, but they were all imperfect. So they never, 
never worked all the time, and, and no one knew why, and they really didn't like each other, um, but they're pressed together to go on what really amounts like X-Files type of uh, uh, supernatural suspense things. He wrote the first one. Frank Peretti wrote the second. Andrew would write the third. I'd write the fourth. I was the caboose. Every time we had four novellas, uh, we uh, would repackage them into a single book, so you get a, a novel-sized book if you wanted. Um, and then we would start the next cycle, which would be the next cycle of four novellas. And yesterday, uh, that would have been the 5th of May. I know this is going to air about a week from now or so. But on the 5th of May, Endgame, which is episode 20, uh, the story and the last one uh, went uh, went for sale. I, I got to write the very last one, which was uh, tough. Sorry to do yeah, that. All r- these people have become friends. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, well, that yeah, that's interesting, and I like how you know you and your team basically said, okay, look, you know, reading habits have changed, and uh, we have great stories to tell. We're going to find a way to get them out there, and. And so you adapted and and came up with this idea. Now, when you said it was number 20, is it the 20th book or it's the 20th? Um, it's the 20th book. It's uh, it's a novella, though. So remember, they're all short books. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a novella. Wow. So it's the 20th one. So you, uh, think of it as the 20th episode in a series. Oh, yeah, and, sure. Uh, so. And uh, and to find those, we would just search online for Harbinger or Harbinger series. Harbinger, if you want it to be plural, because there's another book called Harbinger. Okay, um, good. Very good. famous book, yeah. So you want to do Harbingers, and one of the best ways to do it is just you want use one of the author's names. So okay, Harbingers, sure. Gansky, and it will pull up those, and then you can just link. Um, you know, through Amazon, it's probably the easiest because you can get the e-books as well as physical books. Barnes & Noble, I think, sells the physical books, too. Um, and the early ones now are being uh, put out by Baker Books. Actually, okay. uh, Bethany House. Bethany House now with Baker Books. And that first one came out a short time ago. It's called Invitation. It's the compilation of the first four. Uh, huh. Again, it's uh, Invitation, uh, and that's unfortunately a very popular uh, name. So, you know, look for Invitation Myers or Peretti or Hunt or yeah. Gansky. Um, and the first four are out, and I think next month the next four come out from them. And then later in the year, a third set comes out. And uh, so that's that's the easiest way to catch up. And you can also catch them as e-books. I think yeah. uh, Baker's released them as e-books also. I think um, sort of it just makes me think of being nimble and being um, evolving with sort of the culture of, of reading and um, when you were working on those, you said you were <laughs> you were bringing up the end, wrapping up the stories and wrapping up the final one. Now, I'm sure that as an author who's done so many uh, solo projects, you have with novels and also nonfiction. Well, there were challenges probably working not only with the team but also trying to take their maybe their ideas and weave them together and wrap it up. How did you guys um, approach approach that? collaborative sort of spirit. Yeah, and that uh <laughs> I was going to say it's an issue, but that sounds bad. It it wasn't it wasn't bad, but it is one of the challenges we had to face because and here's the thing with Bill's dream is he didn't want to constrain us. I mean, you ah. got Frank Peretti, okay? Um and Myers who's, you know, had very good success. And Frank Peretti's just quite famous and Angie Hunt has done I don't know how many books, 125 books, something like that, um, really knows what she's doing. And then they, you know, like the younger brother, they let me come along uh, and join the team. Uh, you know, and I've done like 50 books or something, if you count them all. Uh, and so we're all independent. And he knew that you, you couldn't bridle us too much, but yeah. but he gave us an umbrella. This is what we want. This is the character you're going to have. Um, these are the kinds of things we want to face. Now come up with a decent idea and make it suspenseful and scary, and let's see what we do. And and he would do that, and then we would all read them afterwards and say, well, okay, my, you got my character a little inconsistent here because you're getting the ah, right okay. thing. Sure. You know, uh, my character's named Tank. It's, it's actually Bjorn Christensen, but he's a college football star, or was, and so everybody just calls him Tank. He's a huge guy. And um, But he's the spiritual one of the of the group. The others are not that spiritual effect, uh, Peretti's character is the professor who was a former priest turned atheist. 
Um, so there's all that kind of conflict going on. Um, but I would have to say, okay, now you don't have tank right on this. You just that's not something he would say. He'd say it like this, and then it's a very easy fix. And so we just um, became a safety net for each other and tried to check those things um, without constraining uh, the person. But often, what would happen, uh, especially when you're the caboose, as I was, uh, it would come my turn to write, and I would have to say uh, these two or three things have been left open, and I have no idea what to do with them. <laughs> and I have to come up with a solution, yeah, as well as tell my own story, and then that's uh, just the way it worked, and it, and it worked out. Uh, it worked out fine. Uh, that's uh, that's great. Yeah, and, and um, I would I would probably have a hard time with it. Just the way that I write, I'm so organic, and 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 I'll I'll write something, and they'll be like, "No, I'm going to change this," and it changes the entire direction of of the story. That I would probably have been one of those guys like. Uh, you hand it to me, and, and people say, where are you going with this thing? Did you guys outline um, anything beyond what you just explained, or did did you sort of just um, write more organically? I know I think we've talked about this before, and I think you tend to be more intuitive and more organic in the way that you approach your stories. Generally in fiction, I am. I, uh, I'm, yeah, definitely uh, organic. I usually don't outline. I've, I've done both. Uh, and for new writers, I'd say if you don't know which you are, outline. Every writer should have at least outlined once for the experience of it. But for most of my novels, uh, I usually have a character or a premise, and then um, I get in the character's shadow and follow them along because I don't always know what's going on. Now, interestingly enough, in Harbinger's, I couldn't do that. I had to outline. And the reason is I'm too long-winded. So I'm used <laughs> to writing – you know, I'm used to writing 90,000, 100,000 words, and now all of a sudden I have to write, to, again, I'm the long-winded one, say 25,000 words. Uh, and the only way I could do that was do a, a brief outline, and I would do that with uh, chapter titles, and that was enough of a, a key for me. Hmm. Plus, I had to turn them around very quickly because um, we were publishing every six to eight weeks, and I really didn't feel I could write mine until I had the other three books that came ahead of me uh, fully digested, so I didn't create contradictions. Yeah. So I'd have to write fairly quickly. So for me, I had to outline those. Most of the time, however, I uh, I seldom outline more than a you know couple of chapters ahead, um, and then go from there. Now, Al, you mentioned that in this book, um, there's sort of this spiritual um, conflict going on, and I know a lot of your books deal with the kind of the struggle between good and evil, not just in the world, but in our own hearts. And in the past, you've worked as a pastor. And But when we read your books, we don't feel like they're sermons. Um, how do you do that? How do you weave in theological or philosophical insights into a book without people feel like you're trying to, um, I don't know, hammer something in their head or a message-driven book, but instead dive into really the suspense and the action and then just let let those questions help drive the, the dilemma. I think the most interesting fiction is fiction with characters that uh, are so finely drawn, they, they just seem real. You feel like you could see them standing on your, uh, at your front door someday. And any message that I might have in my writing comes through them. So uh, a few years ago, I did a book called Wounds. It's a little, it's a little rough. It's a little dark. Uh, and it has a seminary professor in it, um, and he's he's just very troubled uh, about many things. And what I wanted my readers to do is see his spiritual trouble, the imbalance that was going on in there, while uh, being forced to help track down a serial killer, which he wants nothing to do with. He wants to stay in his ivory tower, but nonetheless, there's a connection, and so he has to he has to do that. So what the reader does is they get the message by watching the person. And if I do my job right, they will be so honest in their portrayal of that. And uh, in this case, in Christianity, they will see the Christianity and the action of the character. Or if the character fails in that, they will see that too, but they'll also see how that affects them. So I've never like believed that, that a novel ought to be a tract or a sermon. It should just be a story, and the, the heart of the character comes out. Yeah, I like how you mentioned the honesty of it, um, that it has to be an honest rendering of that character's struggle, and then, you know, we naturally will see um, sort of how they resolve, you know, those issues or those dilemmas. And um, You mentioned 
your um, nonfiction. You've done, you know, I, I know a number of those over the years. Now, are there any storytelling principles that you see really um, overlapping the two genres between both instructional or inspirational books, however you want to categorize those, or nonfiction, and then also the novels and novellas. Do you see principles that apply to both? Yeah, I think so, and it's one reason I've been able to get some nonfiction um, contracts. Is uh, That's one of the things they wanted, the publishers wanted, was um, fictional technique used not to teach fiction but to teach fact. So in other words, hmm. Uh, in this in this case, I, uh, most recently I've done a couple of books. One's called uh, uh, 60 People Who Shaped the Church, and that's the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, kind of thing. <laughs> so there's heroes. Yeah, there's heroes and, and, you know, just bad people in it, good people. Um, and then 30 events that shaped the church. And at each of those, I always try to apply the, the principle that I wanted to take the reader there. There's always a, a physical description of the individual. Uh-huh. There was always a setting, just like in a, in a novel, you everything uh, uh, takes place on a stage, and so you have to have a setting, a scene, a backdrop. Um, you get, you know, there's some weather going on. There's something anyway that helps uh, set the mood uh, in those things. Well, that can be done in nonfiction too. Uh, you just try to be accurate about it. You don't say if it's raining if it's a sunny day, but if it's a sunny day, sure. then you you pull a little bit of that in, uh, and then bring in the personality. And that was really the goal. I wasn't writing for academic. Uh, academics was writing for uh, the person in the pew. And I wanted them to see these historical characters, these historical events, whether they be good or bad. I wanted to see them as real events, um, but told in, in a way that would make a good novel. Yeah, mood, setting, personality, hmm. characterization. Sounds, it sounds like, it does sound like writing a novel. It, it very much is. And really what it boils down to is, is both, Fiction and nonfiction is communication. And some of the techniques are different. In fiction, you're uh, you're creating people who don't exist. And if you're doing sci-fi or fantasy, uh, you're creating worlds that don't exist, um, time frames that don't exist. In nonfiction, you're not doing that, but you're still using the same techniques of transporting the reader from where they're sitting into that particular uh, in, environment. So uh, in one of my books, I have a, a section on which one should I use? Uh, the the Jesus people, the Jesus movement in the 70s. Well, um, you know, I wanted my readers to understand what that was like to see people who form and former heroin addicts helping people on the street because uh, of the faith that they encounter. You know, what was that like? What did they go through? What did they give up? Um, you know, and, the, and how did they deal with the people who responded negatively to them? And or if you go back even further, um, talk about. Um, invention of the, the printing press, which was monumental, probably the most important historical event, uh, one of the most historic, important historical events ever, changed everything. But I wanted to see Gutenberg. I wanted to see his problems and his bankruptcy and how he lost everything, um, and his, uh, but also his spiritual drive. He wanted to do a Bible, um, and he does. He, he prints the first, uh, the first print Bible, uh, that is a movable type. Uh, and so, so great accomplishment, but also great loss. And uh, that's what makes it uh, memorable. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. I like uh, everything that you were saying. I was thinking about the, the nonfiction that I've read that's really resonated with me or that's really impacted me or that's been interesting, intriguing to me. It almost always has those aspects you just mentioned that uh, mm-hmm. that you try to weave in to the stories that you that you tell, both true stories and and also, um, you know, fictionalized or fictional stories. Um, I have to say, we were, I was like, on your um, website, and your blog posts have a lot of photographs of typewriters. Al, are you a collector? <laughs> yeah, it, it was that or crack cocaine, so I went with typewriters. Um, <laughs> it's an addiction. Which one was more? would have been more expensive, though? That's what I'm wondering. Well, I tell everybody that crack cocaine would have uh, probably been more expensive, <laughs> but there are times. And it's odd that you mentioned that. It's uh, I just bought one today, stumbled across it, and I thought, I've never seen one of these. I have to have that. And um, how many, how many typewriters that, do you have, do you own? I think it's forty three, forty four, something. Forty three like or forty four. Now, have you ever worked on your manuscripts just on the typewriter and put the word processor aside? 
No, not yet. Uh, as it turns out, I'm a great uh, keyboardist, but I'm a lousy typist. Um, and one of the great stories for this is I have a typewriter uh, just like the one I learned to type on when I was in junior high school. And I uh-huh. uh, I love to tell this story because I was just animate about how stupid this was. I was never going to use a typewriter. I don't need to know typing. It's a waste of my time. It's a waste <laughs> of uh, school money. You make me put my fanny in the chair and spend an hour a day typing away on this thing. It's, it's just ridiculous. That's all I do now is type. Um, <laughs> but I didn't see that coming. And uh, so I bought one of those uh, uh, to remind me of uh, of that. Now, I haven't done that. Now, some do. Um, and a lot of people don't realize this, but there are uh, writers today, some of the famous uh, writers um, that uh, still use typewriters. Uh, uh, well, I'm drawing a blank on his name. I can see him. He's... <laughs> Two National Book Awards and a couple of Pulitzer Prizes. Um, hmm. Mc, uh, I just McCar- threw a blank out his name. Cormac McCarthy or no? It's McKellen. Um, oh, I can't think of his name. <laughs> so this, I'll tell you what's embarrassing about this is I can tell you that he uses the Royal KMM typewriter. Now, I can't <laughs> think of his name right now, but I can tell you the model of typewriter he uses. Uh, and he he uh, bought it in '64, and at that point, 1964, and at that point. I think it was already five years old, so he bought it secondhand. Uh, same kind of typewriter that Ray Bradbury used. Um, Interesting. Rod Serling used. And that, for me, um, is really the draw, is that this is the way it used to be done. Yeah. And uh, that's how I started. So I wanted a typewriter uh, as homage to the way writers used to do it. I just didn't know I had an addictive personality. So. <laughs> I like, you know, it's, it's honoring the tradition. And... Uh, it's. I, I had a tough time learning to type with uh, an actual typewriter back in the day, and I'm still not a very good typist or keyboard or whatever. But, but um, I broke a finger of mine a couple of years ago, and I had to start learning to type without it because it it, it didn't. It, it was in a cast or whatever, and so it screwed up my whole typing. My right now, my right pinky finger. I don't use it anymore to type with. And um, it hasn't helped. <laughs> hasn't helped anything. I wasn't great before then, and it only just set me back. He ended up going to the hunt and peck kind of thing. Yeah, hopefully never, never a hundred percent going there. But now, um, Al, you've you've been writing for decades, and um, I'm wondering if your perspective on storytelling has changed um, over the years. In other words. Are there things that you used to maybe teach, but you've started to think differently about recently? Oh, boy, I might have to think about that. Well, my knee-jerk reaction response is no. Um, I've been pretty consistent in that, but I, I think I emphasize things more, the, the personal connection to the characters. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I've, uh, I go on and on about these days is the – personal connection of the story to the writer. Sometimes um, we start writing because we want to be rich and famous. It doesn't take long to get that uh, idea out of our head, but, you know, when the real world sets in, um, or we want to be uh, known because we've written a book or something like that. But best books, there's a connection. And uh, I, I tell writers, look, if you're writing a sad scene and you can't make yourself cry, you will not make your readers cry. Hmm. If, uh, you know, you can't make yourself laugh, because I like to put a lot of humor when I can into to books, your readers aren't going to laugh. So you have to be that immersed into your story that it all rings true for you, then it will ring true for your readers. Now that makes me think of one of the novels that I wrote a couple of years ago now called Opening Moves, and it was very dark and kind of chilling. And I remember editing the book, and I suddenly realized I was biting on my fingernails. That doesn't happen very often, but I was editing, and suddenly I'm like, "Wait a minute! I know how this ends. Like, there's suspense, but it isn't like I don't know what happens." And I was, and uh, but but I think you know, you're right. You know, if we if we can write ourselves to that point, then it'll come through and uh, to the readers. Here's a some research has been done that's indicated that the human mind cannot differentiate between fiction and nonfiction, huh. between reality and story. Uh, once you invest yourself, once the individual does that, uh, the example I like to use is when the eight, when the movie alien came out years and years ago, now they're coming out with another one. Um, 
but uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, but something jumped oh, yeah. out. Oh, uh, yeah. Sci-fi. It's a guy on the face and forces its way into his suit. And, well, when they first show that, this pod opens up and there's some moving around in it. And I used to be a biology major. And I'm in the theater and I lean forward. It's, hey, that looks real. And I lean forward and that thing jumped out. <laughs> and it, it just scared me to death. And, uh, and the whole time through the whole movie, I'm going, look, it's a two-dimensional representation of the story. It can't be real. It shouldn't be this upsetting. And then I'd scream like a little girl because <laughs> <laughs> um, I had so invested. And that's true. Even though you have written a story and you go back and read it, if you've had enough time between it, it will move you as much emotionally as it will someone reading it for the first time. Yeah, Alien is almost like a study in how to develop suspense. I mean, that was mm. that was a pretty groundbreaking movie. I feel like I wouldn't. I don't know if you would call it science fiction or horror. Maybe. Hmm. I never really quite. Yeah, there's a genre that called sci-fi horror. Uh, yeah. It's really a horror story in uh, in space. In space, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's it's basically a horror story. I was thinking about when I asked you if you've changed your view on things. I guess one thing I've changed my view on is this idea. We've always been taught that uh, that um, characters need to change in a story. It's often taught at writers' conferences. This character needs to change, and, and then I was at one uh, a conference, and this guy said, "That's a bunch of BS." And I was like, "What are you talking?" He said, "Stories are not there to change characters; they're there to reveal characters." And so it made it's made me step back and look at what my approach is and I tend to feel like that if the internal struggle of the character is the most important um, aspect of the story then they will end up being transformed or changed but if it's the external like a James Bond or Sherlock Holmes or Batman story or something like that where they're trying to solve this big you know maybe a terrorist attack or whatever it might be then the transformation tends to be external, and it's there to reveal more than it is to to change. Um, now, I know that you've written some series characters over the years. I'm curious what your thought is about that with your series characters. Do they tend to – do people come to the stories in order to see your characters revealed or to see them transformed? I think revealed. Yeah. I'm, I'm chuckling because um, – a book club had asked me to talk to him. So I was doing this over the phone thing. I think they were in Texas or something like that. I'm out in California. And uh, one of the first things had to do with a Perry Sachs book. Uh, Perry Sachs is a engineer, you know, good looking kind of guy, uh, unmarried. One of the first questions I, I got was, can I marry Perry? <laughs> and it really, it, it set me back because I thought, well, no, he's not real. Uh, um, but to them, to that person anyway, um, they had so identified with him that they began to feel a bond with him. And I think what that taught me along with other things is if we have characters that readers love, that's what they want. They want to learn more about their character. Yeah. They don't have to necessarily be transformed. Events will transform them some. Right. But there doesn't have to be a major emotional catharsis in every book, especially books that are going to be a series. Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, um, you know, we we go to movies. I don't know what, um, whatever, uh, whenever they do a remake or or we come back to books, whether it's Sherlock Holmes or we go to the, I don't know, the Fast and the Furious movies or whatever it might be. We come to those, we keep going back to them, not because the characters are different in every episode, but because they're not different in every episode, because we right. like being with that character. We like, you know, she loves that character of, of yours, and she comes back to the books because she likes being with him as he is, but but yet he also does learn and grow throughout, you know, throughout the series. Right, through the, through the experience, and that sometimes makes him a better person in the next story. I think some of it comes from literary writing. And um, I'm not going to say anything negative about literary writing. It's got a place. But in many of those, it is a story of coming of age. It's a story of loss uh, and facing the future in light of that loss. Uh, You know, even the ones written primarily for uh, kids, Old Yeller, um, those kinds of things, uh, where, you know, a boy falls uh, or he just becomes very attached to a pet dog and then he has to lose the dog. 
um, you know, another one, Weep No More, My Lady. I think all of these have been made into movies. Yeah. Um, but that's the story behind that is a boy's love for a dog and how the boy has to grow up and therefore is changed in the story. Well, now, in a James Bond story, yeah, he's already an adult. Now, he does have some – there are some books, uh, you know, where he – has to make some kind of emotional change. Our Clive Cussler books uh, with Dirk Pitt, it yeah. took a lot of books before you see a real emotional change in him. Um, but the people go read those books because they want to see not a catharsis in the character. They want to see that person of action. They want to see somebody strong. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And, uh, you know, especially with that, the big problem needs to be solved external. You've written a lot of action um, and suspense stories, and and I think didn't you do one series where you collaborated with um, someone who had been a JAG officer, I think, um, or or something like that? Yeah, close. There's really two stories there. Uh, one, one of the writers I found, uh, Don Brown, not Dan Brown, Don Brown, was a former JAG officer, uh, JAG Judge Advocate General. That is, he was an attorney in the Navy. Um, and he had come to the Blue Ridge Conference, you know, the one where we met. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, he showed me his first book. first book wasn't ready, but I learned he'd been a JAG officer. And so I asked him where his JAG stories were, and this was when JAG was big on television. Yeah. He said, well, you think, you think people would read that? Well, yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> We're in, what, six, episodes, six seasons of this thing? Um, and so I said, get me one of those. Let me see if I can do something for you. And I don't know how many stories he's done like that. He's done quite well uh, publishing those stories and those that are similar in story. Now, the one you're talking about is um, uh, Jeff Struker. Jeff Struker was in the Black Hawk Down. Okay. I say he was in it. I don't say he was in the movie. If you watch the movie, you'll hear his name. Uh, but he was there on scene. And you'll, uh, if you watch the movie, you'll see some of the things that he went through. Uh, he would later go on to go back to college, go to seminary, because he's a pastor now. He's retired. Um, I think he retired as a late colonel, lieutenant colonel. But anyway, I did a series with him, yeah, which was about a special operations army team. And uh, and there we, we see people go through trouble. We see them grow in becoming stronger because of what they go through. So in that sense, they change, but they remain the same people. Yeah. Now, um, when you're writing an action sequence like that, or maybe a fight scene, anything, those are hard for me to pull off. I have a difficult time with creating the, you know, one that's believable, but that also moves at the right speed. What did you learn as you were working on those stories, maybe with with him, or even the ones that you've done yourself? Any ideas or insights on the action sequences, the fights, anything like that? Well, uh, maybe a couple of things. Uh, one of the great things about writing fiction is you can uh, bend the rules of composition that you learned at school. Um, you know, for example, it's not unusual, as you know, for a fiction writer to have a one-word sentence. Uh, right. That's frowned upon when you're going to school, but in fiction you get away with it. Uh, and on style sheets, uh, for our listeners, a style sheet is something that's often submitted with a book. That says, this is how I... I treat things with a personal pronoun for God, like him, I capitalize, or I don't capitalize, um, whatever it might be. Uh, and you list some of those things, and one of them will be sentence fragments. As in all fiction, uh, writers use sentence fragments. Uh, please don't correct. So there's yeah. a reason. So, yeah. so one of the things that we can do in fiction is we can change the way we do sentences. And Dean Koontz is a master of this. Um, he, uh, he's really, really good. So what he does is he changes the pacing of the sentences. The more intense it gets, the shorter the sentence gets, the sharper the verbs get. Or if he wants to draw something out, he's got a scene, I forget in which book, where someone is going to be stabbed. And the act of stabbing goes on for like a page and a half, two pages. Um, but most of that is all one sentence. He doesn't hmm. let the reader breathe. Hmm. So where the reader's waiting for a, a moment for a break in the sentence to take a breath, he doesn't give him one. So what he does is he takes something, and that was his question. How do I take something that happens in a second and stretch it out so the reader will understand 
everything that's going on, and that's what he did. So sometimes the thing to do is to play with the words that are used. Uh, don't be afraid to, you know, describe the pain. Um, sometimes you have to describe a bit of the gore. I don't like to go over too much. I did have one editor say uh, I had a character shot in the chest, and she said, do you really have to mention the blood? And I said, well, he was shot in the <laughs> chest. So, yeah, there's there's probably going to be blood. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I really do have to mention it. I don't have to, you know, get overly graphic about it, but I need to you know, set the stage properly. Um, and so you change the pacing of the sentences, uh, how long sentences are, how short they are. Uh, I sometimes break sentences. I'll take a paragraph and break them into individual sentences so that it reads faster. Normally it would be one paragraph. You know, I might get four paragraphs out of a bunch yeah. of short sentences just so that it reads faster. Um, you know, it, it heightens the uh, anxiety or the fear, the excitement, the adventure, whatever it might be. Yeah. Interesting. Do you ever, um, when you have a fight scene, do you ever play it out in your office, jumping on, jumping on the desk or throwing the typewriter across the room or anything like that? No, no, no. I always go in the living room. <laughs> <laughs> I find that sometimes if I do walk through, I'm like, Wait a minute, he could never reach his gun because, you know, or, or whatever, it's it's six feet away. Like, how did I even think that? But, but actually go fiscalizing, it does sometimes, you know, I, um, help me. Yeah, I have done that a few times where I have walked uh, I have walked through the action to make sure oh, that yeah. I got it right. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've done that uh, pacing up and down the house trying to get this thing figured out, uh, and then it comes to me uh, how this this would work. And it can be difficult. I was uh, doing a an edit for uh, a well-known writer, uh, and there was going to be a fight scene in a parking structure. And uh, the good guy pulls out a a pistol of some sort, say, let's say it's a Glock 9mm or something, and puts it in the uh, back of his pants under his belt. Yeah. And then he ends up in a fist fight with uh, the antagonist. And this fist fight goes on quite a while. So finally I had to write her, and I say, He's got a gun. Well, you know, why is he duking it out and taking a beating? Yeah. The gun would have come out first thing. And she said, well, my problem is I don't know anything about guns, so I don't know how to use it. So I just didn't know what to write. <laughs> so I rewrote a section where um, I, I think he gets hit from the side or something. Somehow he gets blindsided and the gun goes skittering under a car. Yeah. So he can't reach it. I said, okay, now the rest of your scene works. Can yeah, you get rid good. of the gun? Yeah. Believability. Get rid of the gun or do you know do something, and uh, then the scene works. But because yeah, the readers, first thing they'll say is, "Well, why doesn't he just use a gun?" And um, yeah, yeah. And I think that whenever readers get to that place, or an audience, if it were a screenplay, and they say, "Well, why doesn't he just blah blah blah?" You've right there. You have made them stumble. You've made the 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 story stumble. That you need to fix that. So that question, yeah, I often, yeah, yeah, I often ask myself, what would readers be thinking at this moment in the story? Oh, that's so, a good question, yeah. Yeah, so, so Al, if people haven't read your books before, where would you say is a good place to start? Is it this new series, or do you have another, um, another place, some of your solo novels that you've done by yourself that would be good to get a feel for your writing? Uh, it's been a while since I've issued a, a full length. Yeah, on my website you can you can get some of the uh, previous books uh, that I'm republishing. Um, you know, really you can go to Amazon or some of the others and just put my name in and uh, get your pick that way. The most uh, recent ones would be on the fiction side would be uh, the Harbingers. Now I'll only be the every fourth book, so in four, eight, and so on. But the series is worth reading. It's yeah. a little weird. It's a little wacky. Um, characters are. Just really colorful, um, and you know, there's there's a couple you just really love to hate, uh, but there's something to them that you kind of love. So it's a, it's a good series. Yeah, kind of complex uh, characters. It's good. Yeah, it's, uh, it's they don't really know themselves. See, that's part of the problem because uh, they're all young. Yeah, one. And your website where people can go is at altongansky.com. So people, is that also if people want to connect with you, maybe follow you online or see if you're doing book signings or or speaking at events or or Facebook? Sure. What's the best place to 
Yeah, altogetsky.com is where most of the stuff happens, but you can follow me on Facebook uh, and on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I do videos. I used to interview a lot of writers, but uh, lately I've been doing the typewriter stuff. So, you know, if you're looking for a new addiction, um, like <laughs> typewriters or something, uh, I do short videos. And you just go to YouTube slash Alton Gansky, and you can see all of those things. Oh, YouTube.com nice. slash Alton Gansky, and there's just a whole bunch here. Or my website, I uh, I always put the uh, most recent video stuff that I do there also. Well, I want to encourage everyone listening to go out and check out The Harbingers or go to Al's website and um, check out one of his earlier novels. I think those are mainly the ones that I've read. I haven't read any of the new ones. I'll have to check those out. For more information about my novel writing intensive retreats and that I teach around the country, click novelwritingintensive.com. And, and also my writing is uh, at um, stephenjames.net or read Stephen James is my Twitter handle. Um, and, of course, more information about the Story Blender, you can go to thestoryblender.com. And, uh, and Al, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your insights. And, uh, and it's neat because I kind of look at you, I don't know, a little bit as a mentor, especially as I was getting started. You really encouraged me and also kind of gave me insights about developing suspense that ended up helping to start my career. So it's a good chance for me to say thanks. You're certainly welcome. It's uh it's always been a joy to be with you, and it's been fun to watch your career. Uh, you've got a you've got a great talent. I appreciate it. So, so um, everyone, thanks for for listening to the show, and uh, please do check out our other broadcasts. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.